Hi, I'm Gary Nall, and I'd like to welcome you to a special presentation. It's all about discovering our authentic self through enhancing self-esteem. So we're going to focus upon self-esteem and how often have we misunderstood what real self-esteem is? Have we put ego instead of self-esteem? Or what happens when we try something and it doesn't work? What happens when we're seeking balance in our life but almost everything that we're putting in our life imbalances us? I want to explore this in some depth. The idea is it's not that I have all the answers or necessarily that the answers I'm giving you are the right answers. Instead, what I'm going to do is raise questions and it's through the questions and your capacity to take these questions and mold them and form them and examine them from different points of view. And the hope is that you're going to be just flicking on some lights, lights of illumination, illuminating yourself to your own problems. Some time ago I realized that it's not the best that we are that determines the success, happiness, fulfillment of our life. It is the worst that we are. But how far do we get if we expose our vulnerabilities, our uncertainties, our fears? More often than not in our society, in a highly competitive society, someone will find a way of taking advantage of the very thing that you're trying to resolve. So on the one hand, we ask people, be open, be honest, show yourself. And someone says, okay. And they are, they're open and honest and boom, we hit them, take advantage of them. It creates fear in people, it creates such doubt that they can ever be completely honest about anything. How many times have you wanted to be honest and you realize, hold on, if I'm really honest with people who are not prepared to accept my honesty, I'm going to be victimized by just being open and honest. So we try to read circumstances. We try to read what other people are really thinking. We try to figure out how can we say something and be accepted. Being accepted frequently is more important than being honest. And as often as not, we are misunderstood or not understood the way we want to be, not seen for who we are. And that causes frustration. And then it causes a negative cycle. Self-doubt, self-value. What value am I if I've not done the things that are meaningful to my own existence? How important can I be to my family if I can't show them that I'm a responsible and caring person? And then we start looking at where do we fit in the hierarchy of every single group in our society. And everybody has a different expectation of us. Everybody expects something from us. What do we expect from ourselves? What if we don't expect enough and stay at a very low level of function? What if we expect too much and can never achieve it? Now think of this for a moment. We have a room filled with people. The people in this room are here, I would imagine, because they want to see what they can do to take their self-esteem to a more authentic level so that you don't have to look outside of yourself for that love that we are told is out there. All we have to do is find it and we'll feel better about ourselves. I believe that you shouldn't be looking outside of yourself for what's essentially a completely internal journey. Mixing and matching all of the external circumstances will never make you feel better about yourself. We look at the models and the actors and we look at the power of people and we think, whoa, wouldn't it be nice to be them? 
On what level? Because you don't know what suffering they go through, do you? Because it's hidden. Unless it does play out. And if it does play out, then suddenly that becomes a drama that we attach to the drama. And all the while, we're dancing around ourselves, trying to figure out, who are we? Who are we? If I'm waking up today, who am I going to be today? So this journey is about trying to stop long enough to take an honest look at the authentic self, and I underline the concept of authentic, and then try to deconstruct each and every part of us that's not real to our authentic self. It may be real to our employer, our friends, but about us. And at the end of the day, if you're not authentic to yourself, then you're living a completely empty existence at the level where it's important. I know people running off to ashrams and meditating. We're in New York City filming this, and on the weekends, all around New York City, they have these ashrams filled with yoga, and they'll go up and eat some brown rice, drink apple juice, sleep 15 people on a floor, and wake up thinking they're completely authentic, do their yoga, do their mantras, make sure they're doing it right by watching and talking to everyone else. Do you get it? Do you get it? I, I do it right? I don't know. I feel achy. You didn't stretch enough? And then they go home thinking on the way back in the car or bus, gee whiz, I did something really special. And the next day, they wake up and they get on the train and, and suddenly they, they're uncertain again. And they start planning the next retreat, the next fix. Isn't it interesting? You can be addicted to recovery, self-empowerment, self-help, vehicles. Who do you think went off and joined all of these cults in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. Very confused, but more often than not, educated and affluent individuals who all their wealth, whether given to them or made, and all their, all their things didn't make them really feel comfortable about who they were inside. So we're looking in all the wrong places. So what can we do? First and foremost, we have to get to the foundation upon which everything within our being rests. And how do we do that? I'm going to give you some questions, and I need you to think on these questions. Write them down. And in the quiet moments that you will choose each day, reflect on each one of these. Here we go. And I'll repeat them, just so we, we get them. Do you possess all the resources and openness to choose growth? Again, do you possess the resources and openness to choose growth? Because if you take an honest inventory of who you are, you're going to either say, yes, I've got that, or no, I don't have that. Do you have courage? That's a very important one, because without courage, what are you going to do? Who are you going to stand up to? What system are you going to be able to say, no more, don't want it anymore, that's not me anymore, was me, not today? What about the friends that you had that will identify you as the person that they used to do things with and maybe you went out for pizza and now you say the pizza is not going to honor who I am, that's not going to help my self-esteem, I've I got to make a change. It takes courage in a non-confrontational way to express that you're no longer that person. Well, of course you are, they say. No, I'm not. No, I'm not, because 
I'm the person I am in this moment. Do not identify me from the past because the past is dead. It no longer exists. And all we have in life are moments. And we make the mistake of trying to make a moment stretch. We want that blissful occasion to last. Think of the times in your life where your mother or your father held you closely and you felt complete comfort and warmth and security and unconditional love. Think of the times when you felt no anxiety about anything. Maybe it was when you were sitting on a swing and smelling the fresh cut grass in the summertime or the dried leaves in the winter as fall and or looking at snowflakes and cuddled up under a comforter. There are moments that we have that cause all of our cells to vibrate vitalism. We've connected with something that's absolutely authentic and it's not in conflict. There's no conflict. In the absent conflict, there's bliss. It's a blissful moment. And we all know how blissful moments feel. There's comfort, security, warmth. And we also know that we want to recover those moments. And so we start looking for how can we recover the moments. The trouble is, those moments were moments. And they may never happen again. And the moment you had will never happen again. You'll have other moments, but never that same moment. But we want that moment. It's indelibly imprinted now in our psyche. It vibrates. We feel it. There's an electrical charge. It's a sensation. It's like a person that had an arm that's amputated, and there's still this phantom feeling. They can feel as if they really had an arm, and there's pain in an arm that's not there. How can you have pain in an arm that doesn't exist? But they do. The pain is not in the shoulder. The pain is not in the rib cage, or the back, or the neck. The pain is in an arm. And they will tell you, I have pain in an arm that doesn't exist. And they'll be measured, and sure enough, their body chemistry is responding as if that arm still existed. Well, because it does, because the energy that was the arm is still there. You cannot destroy energy. And all sensation is held in the energy. Everything you see is an energy. It vibrates. Positive, negative, exciting, depressing. Everything you eat, smell, taste is an energy. And all energy vibrates. And that's why we have our favorite dish. So if you were growing up and, and you were anxious and your mother gave you hot apple pie, now when you're anxious, you want hot apple pie. And if you can't find that, you'll find a substitute. The trouble is, almost everything in life is a substitute for the authentic that we no longer experience. And then we grow up, and there are people there. There are people telling us what to believe and how to think and answering all of our questions. And most importantly, helping us when we're afraid. You wake up in the middle of the night, you scream because there's a monster in your room, and your mother comes in and turns on the light, and it's some clothes on a hamper, and you're comforted, and you feel okay, and you want to go sleep with her in the bed, and she says, no, it's all right. But there's comfort. But what happens when you wake up and you're 30 years old 
and you're not married or you're not in that relationship or you're not where you are in your career and anxiety starts to palpate. Now the monster is in here. Lack of self-esteem, lack of success, lack of fulfillment, lack of connection, lack of identity. But there's no one to comfort that. There's no one to hold you. There's no one for the transitions in life, not in our culture. So what do you do? You try to fill that void. And how do you fill a void? Tranquilizers. Tranquilizer will take the monster off the top and the pit from the bottom. But it also numbs everything. It anesthetizes you. It desensitizes you. Or you plow into a bowl of ice cream. Or you just distract yourself and work like a demon. You become the person that can take all that responsibility. Put it on my shoulders. I can handle it, you think. And sure enough, it seems like you are. But on the inside, you're falling apart. And again, you're vibrating here of something from the past. And you're trying to reconcile it with what you're feeling today. And the two don't meet. So you try to get something to connect with. A relationship, that's it. A relationship. I'll feel better. Why not? Have a kid, you got 18 years of your life. You don't have to think about it. You focus on the kid and the family. And a lot of people have so many kids, it's all going to be in the family. Till one day they're all grown and gone, and then suddenly there's a big anxiety for those who had the kids for the wrong reasons. Having a kid for the right reason, well, that can balance energy. It's all what we do. It's why we choose something also. Because if you choose the wrong energy to come into your life, you're going to imbalance that energy. Think of how many times we have experienced that one moment when we cannot control our emotions, <coughs> our expression, an orgasm, right? Well, that gives you an energy that you will live with. And now, when you're not having an orgasm, the body has a sensation that it wants to be stimulated again. But we are constricted. We're constricted by our beliefs, limited in the appropriateness of that response. And so people turn to ways that they can try to connect. Pornography. More Americans use their computers for pornography than all other reasons. But we won't be honest about this, because to be honest with it means that we are sexually dysfunctional. And then we'll use alcohol, a drug that kills 75,000 Americans each year. More Americans die from drinking each year than the Vietnam War. Do you see any movement to educate or curtail this? Not at all. So what we're dealing with then, we're dealing with energies that are vibrating in us, needing to attach, needing some fulfillment. The emotions, the love need, the security need, the exciting needs, we have all these energies flashing and we don't know what to do. So we look for a relationship or we look for a different environment. We look for something to make a difference. But none of it's authentic because we're trying to match something now with something from the past. We go to a resort. We, we, we go to dinner. 
We go to a ball game, we go to a movie, we go to a concert, and nothing seems to be exactly the way it was. Well, how can it be? That's the danger of living in the past. That's the danger of making choices about the past, as if the past is relevant today. The past is not relevant today. Today is relevant for today. I can't change the past, the best or the worst it was. No one can change the past. You can spend the rest of your life in psychoanalysis. It won't change anything. The only thing you can do is change the idea that the past is relevant to the moment you're in. When I no longer fear having to match my past with the present, then I'm fully aware of the present and I'm functional for the present, I can vibrate with it. So whatever I'm given, I at least can accept it for what it is. Do you know how many people are in relationships they can't stand, but would rather be in something they can't stand than in no relationship at all? Better to have some very distorted image of what a relationship should be than to have no relationship because we're judged. Our self-esteem is, what, you're not in a relationship? And then you watch something like Sex and the City and they're utterly dysfunctional. <laughs> they take the most gross and vulgar aspects of human nature and display it as if somehow that's a normal action. It's not. That's an abnormal action. Just like if only people that were talking about health were overweight people, then one day you're going to look and say, you mean that's normal to be overweight? No, that's not normal to be overweight. It may be average, but it's not normal. Or watching television, everything on the news is negative. Then one day we realize that maybe the news is just all negative. That's normal. No, that's what they made it to get our attention because if they didn't give us something that was abnormal and obsessive and, and, and toxic, we wouldn't pay attention to it. What if they gave us good news? What if they gave us happy news? What if they focus on people who were enjoying their life? And then we start realizing, well, well who's going to watch it? <laughs> you know, they're not going to put People magazine out with people that you don't know. Who's going to read it? You're going to read about Tom and Mary from Nowhereville? Common, just like you? No, you don't want to read about people like you. You don't want to go to a movie and see people like you. One of the greatest actresses, if not the greatest actress on the American stage, no one. I didn't even know her. But when I saw this wonderful movie, a documentary about Broadway and the golden years of Broadway, uh, Stephen Sondheim and, and uh, Ben Gazzara and, and all these men and women from the 50s, 60s, and 70s talked, all of them talked, the, the greatest actress is this woman. And why wasn't she an actress in movies? Well, because she went out to test for uh, David Oselnik, and he says, well, she's just a, you know, like a cleaning woman. But she was testing for a cleaning woman role. She did it so well that he thought she was just a cleaning woman. He was looking for an actress trying to play cleaning woman. She actually convinced him she was a cleaning woman. Well, hello, isn't that what acting is? And, but she did this on the theater, and she did it so well in the theater that people, would, experienced actors, would go and watch her night after night after night after night after night. They never tired of her because of watching her method that they all tried to emulate, but she alone was that masterful. Now, think of it this way. Think of how many times we look at something in life and we don't even know what we're looking at. 
because we've gotten so used to having someone alter what we're looking at and then try to convince us that it's something else. Giving us a fast food meal and trying to convince us it's a healthy meal. Give us superficial conversation and try to make it authentic conversation and authentic communication. Giving us artificial beliefs and trying to make us think that they're legitimate. Politicians telling us what they want us to believe instead of what we should believe and we're going along with it. So there comes a time when we get too lazy intellectually, emotionally, creatively to look for the truth in anything. Unless you're willing to look for the truth in things, you won't have the resources to make the change. So the whole idea of having the resources to make change is to evaluate, do you have the determination to look for the truth no matter how deep you have to dig? Do you have the courage to stand up to a lot of the artificial environment and people and still keep your discipline to maintain your own balance, no matter how much anyone else wants to imbalance you or discourage you? Do you have the honesty to know when something is real and not real? Because those are just the basic standard qualities necessary to create a self-esteem that is authentic. And with real authentic self-esteem, you're already going to be vibrating differently because you're not looking for the artificial, you're looking for the authentic. And you know what it is? If I looked in your blood and if I didn't know what I was looking for, I wouldn't find it. There's too much in your blood. It's like standing on Fifth Avenue at rush hour and someone says, find this woman. And you say, give me a picture. No, just find her. What's she look like? Well, just guess. But there are five million women coming. Well, just find her. How can I? You've got to know what you're looking for in life. Because the reality only begins when you visualize it. You then create a reality in the cell. The cell has no reality to go forward until you give it. The reality of the cell is to honor the energy you give. It's there. 100 trillion cells willing to work on behalf of you. But you have to guide it. And if you guide it in the wrong direction, you're going to guide it into disease. The cell will never voluntarily hurt you. When you smoke, it still tries to protect you. When you eat the wrong food, it'll try to protect you. When you get angry and bent out of shape, it'll try to protect you. Isn't it amazing that every single second of your life, you're rarely, if ever, doing anything as constructive consciously for your cells. And yet a hundred trillion cells are constantly, forever, of your life working on your behalf. My goodness, doesn't it tell you that there's a consciousness greater than the conscious mind that's working on your behalf? Hence, that is the immortality. Immortality does exist. Cancer cells are immortal. They won't die. Life only changes form, but the energy does not die. So everything is energy, but you have to master energy. Energy is not mastered for what reasons? Lack of self-confidence, lack of control, lack of discipline, lack of true self-acceptance. Because when you accept yourself, you immediately enhance your self-esteem. 
There's no better self-esteem enhancement than acceptance of self. Because then you're not doing something for ego to prove yourself. When you try to prove yourself to anyone, you've just lost yourself. Because now in the, in the act of proving yourself to someone else, you become the other person's energy. You've ceased being your own. That's why fighting is so irrelevant to change. And yet we use it as if it's the primary vehicle. We fight to get to the top. We fight against cancer, war against cancer, war against AIDS. The whole concept is one of a military approach. There's no subtle energies. There's no healing energies. There's no way to rebalance when everything is a gross distortion of what the human psyche and human energy can benefit from. The human psyche does not benefit from that kind of conflict. And the human psyche will then create an energy that overlaps the existing energy and forces it to retaliate. You call someone a name, they're going to call you back a name. You hit someone, they're going to hit you back, or want to hit you back, and now you've created conflict. You eat garbage, you've created conflict. It's like hitting yourself in the heart when you eat a hot dog. You drink alcohol, it's like hitting one million times, knocking out, killing one million cells of the brain with every glass of alcohol. And the liver, and the kidneys. Every time you smoke a cigarette, you're killing cells creating conflict. Every time you do something that is not the authentic self, it's conflict. Every time you reach back in the past for an emotion to express what you're feeling in this moment, it's a conflict. Every time you're looking at the past as a mirror to the present, try to match something, it's never going to be the right match, it's a conflict. Well, then we wake up one day and almost all of our life is nothing but a conflict at various levels of vibration, minor or major, going to work at a work we don't like to pay for a lifestyle that doesn't give us fulfillment, living in a community that's co totally congested and polluted, but thinking that somehow our self-esteem is going to be enhanced if we can show people I can afford to live here, going out with someone because of how it will make us look. And hence, if we look good, we'll feel good. No, that kind of reasoning is, is no different than the addict taking the, the junk in the arm, the heroin in the arm, or the smack up their nose, or cocaine, in order to feel good. The things out there are not supposed to make us feel good. They're supposed to be good for us. How we feel should come from a more authentic place than the superficialness of things. And yet right now, as we speak, how many people right here in the heart of New York City are working tonight in order to prove themselves and try to get their self-esteem through that false sense of proving? They will have to imbalance themselves, their health, their relationships, with their pets, their scholarship, their mastery, are all now out of balance. Well, if you're out of balance, you're in conflict. And if you're in conflict, you're going to have disease. So reversing disease is reversing the nature of conflict. And reversing the nature of conflict is reversing the lack of authenticity in our lives. The more authentic your life is, the more balanced you are. 
the more balanced you are, the more authentic you are. When you're authentic, you're in the moment. When you're in the moment, you can make decisions from the moment. Being in the moment, making decisions from the moment means you make them from a non-judgmental mindset. Because when you can see something and let it be what it is, that doesn't mean you accept or reject it. It means you're allowing it to be what it is. Then you can decide how you want to use your energy to affect change or connect. But we react before we reason. And it's an emotional reaction. But that is from our past. Almost all of our emotions are from our past. Almost none of the emotions you experience now are from now. Everything's from the past. It's like this incredible luggage you keep dragging into the day as if it's supposed to help you and it doesn't help you. So when it doesn't help you, then you go through this very macabre process of suffering and saying that I redeem this moment through my suffering. Well, there's no redemption through suffering in the moment. Because that in itself becomes a way of justifying uh, your self-esteem in your life. So when something's not happening the way you want to, you go into your suffering mode, or your crying mode, or your anger mode, or your withdrawal mode, or your depression mode. Where'd you learn that? From now? No, from the past. That's why you have to have the courage to separate from the past and the energy. As long as you're connected with the energy from the past, it will continue to vibrate and manifest in everything you think, do, and say, feel, and are in this moment. Trying to do something else new while the old energy is still present creates a conflict, the psychic spasm. Should I, should I not? Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. I did, I shouldn't have, I should have, I didn't. We're in utter conflict and confusion. You know what that's like, don't you? Oh, have I seen it, the people in this audience. My God, your basket cases. And you wonder why. It's so easy to see. And yet, we get so caught up in the energy of our emotions that we don't free ourselves. Don't trust your emotions. They're preconditioned. Your tears are conditioned tears. Your fear is a conditioned fear. Your anger is a conditioned anger. Your insecurity is a conditioned insecurity. So we walk around waiting for someone to say something, someone to do something, and suddenly we react. So all we are is a series of inappropriate reactions. And then the reaction causes an emotional response. And we focus upon the emotion and try to have someone comfort or calm the emotion. Makes no sense. And a whole industry is based upon helping you resolve your emotion. That's the wrong end of the problem. And that's why the whole field of self-help is so flawed. Next issue. What in your excuses is distorted? Think how many times you've given yourself an excuse for something. Now, be honest. Ask yourself, what's distorted about this? You've got to look for the distortions. That's where the courage to be honest, because if you do not look for the distortions in your excuses, then you'll accept your excuses as legitimate. I couldn't do that. I didn't know. Did you try? Did you want to know? 
How many people in this room have someone they know who smoked and got sick? And how many times did they say, I didn't know, right? And you could have said, did you want to know? No. Because then if they found out, then it would have been a crisis of gee whiz. Now I know that what I'm doing is wrong. What am I going to do about it? So we try not to get so close to a solution that we actually are forced then to make a decision. Next. Are you living too small of a life? Now think of this for a moment. I believe that we do live too small a lives. I believe that part of the reason we live a small life is because of the fear that other people have if we start to expand beyond what they believe is our appropriate roles. Think of what you refuse to feel and experience because you keep trying to justify every decision from the little box that you grew up in. We were taught growing up that every single answer we would have to any question would be answered inside the existing paradigm from the experts, whoever they might be. And then one day we ask questions that we're not getting the right answer to. Clearly, they're not listening to the nature of our question, and they're not looking to see whether or not their answer is going to really help us. For example, just one example, a person goes to see a doctor. The doctor says, I'm sorry, but there's nothing more that we can do for your cancer. We've tried chemotherapy and surgery and radiation. It's grown back. We've tried it again. I can give you some morphine. Uh, you'll have between maybe three months and six months to live, and you should try to enjoy that as much as you can. And so then you say, well, doctor, I heard about a therapy uh, called immune augmentative therapy, and I was told that it's helped some people. And more likely than not, the doctor's going to say, no, 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 don't try that. It's quackery, right? And a lot of people go, okay. My God. That is a prisoner. If a doctor told you you were going to die, what would it matter what you tried? You're not going to be less dead. But we'll go into that person's energy, right? Remember, one of the ways I try to help people stay alive who are terminal is get them to disconnect from the doctor's energy. Because the doctor's already said, I'm sorry, you're going to die, and they believe it. They've got a t clock ticking, and they're going to honor that doctor's energy. So when three months comes, doctor said three months, they've given up. They've surrendered. Mega channeling. The cell opens up, they're dead. That's the power of belief. Used to be in other cultures called bone pointing. In Aboriginal cultures, if you do something wrong, the medicine man will point a bone, you go out, sit under a tree, and you're dead the next day. You die. You can will yourself to die. We are influenced by other people's energy. We're influenced by the energy from our past. So let's say that along the way we've had our positive moments, we've had our orgasms, we've had our bonding and our love. We've had that wonderful food and that great sunset and walks by the ocean. We've petted the fawn in the forest and we, we've watched the squirrels play. We've been in moments of bliss, but we've also been in moments of pain. 
when people have said things, done things, that were inappropriate, unkind, and all negative energy. In the moment we may have been too small, or we may have been not using any defense mechanism, so we absorbed it. Now we have all that energy in us. And think of all the negatives versus the positives that happen. Think of how you have to numb yourself to walk down the streets of Manhattan frequently. Walk by people you're not willing to look at because you're afraid of the response if you look in someone's eyes. Recently there was a movie I saw, a premiere I, um, about uh, some people in Brooklyn and this guy was walking down the street, this lawyer, and just for a moment as he's walking he looked up and there's some guys walking by and boom, they smacked him, you know, slugged him. Don't look at me, the guy said. And so he just kept walking. Think of how fearful we are of not being able to control the response and interreactions with other people. And who are the people we're most likely to fear a reaction from? Authority figures. Why? Because growing up the authority figures controlled our environment. And we became an extension of them. Recently I had an opportunity to counsel a young girl and her mother, she had been diagnosed with ADD and was on Ritalin. And when I spoke with the young girl, I could not find where she was at all suffering from this. did notice certain things because there were school teachers she liked and did A's and paid attention. There were hobbies she had where she could focus for hours. Well, I want to tell you, if you have a brain disorder, you can't focus at all. You can't be selective. It's like saying, today I have cancer, tomorrow it's Tuesday. I don't have cancer on Tuesdays. No cancer on Wednesday, back again. It doesn't work that way. Now you think science would accept this. Psychiatry would accept this. You think psychologists would be at least somewhat bright? Ask them this question. What have you done to disprove your diagnosis? If you have hepatitis, you can see it in the liver. If you have herpes, it's in your blood. If you have macular degeneration, it's there. Everything else we can measure it and it's there. ADD, it's not measurable because it's not there. We're taking normal behavior or normal behavior that is exaggerated, like you give a kip caffeine, you give them artificial sweet, you give them sugar, you're going to so excite react their brain cells, they're going to bounce off the walls. They're not going to be able to focus. You give a kid so much sugar that they're high and then they're low and now they're just leaning on their desk not paying attention. Ah, why aren't you paying attention? Kid can't say, I, I feel tired. You shouldn't feel tired, it's 9.30 in the morning. So I take this kid and I say, you're fidgeting. Why are you fidgeting? I don't know, but I'm watching the mother. The mother's doing the same thing. So I ask a question to the mother. Do you talk on the cell phone a lot? Yeah, I'm a lawyer, I got to. So everywhere, no matter where you're at, home, with your kid, yeah. So I said to the kid, I said, do you ever watch your mom on the phone? Well, I have to, all the time, because she walks around, so on the phone. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, okay, gesturing. So what's the kid do? Mm-hmm, yeah. Hello? Nobody could figure this out? Not a psychologist in America could figure this out? No! 
because they're not looking for it. Go back to the blood. If you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to find it. They're trying to find something that justifies their beliefs because their self-esteem is no way uh, going to be diminished by not being able to help someone. So with all the determination to do something to help someone, they don't look whether or not the model they're using is flawed. So if they're Freudian or Jungian or Adlerian uh, or Gestalt, they're going to try to fit your problems into their model because they can only help you if you're in their model. There was a doctor here in New York City who believed everyone had hypoglycemia. You could walk in with your leg in your hands, cut off from a chainsaw, and he'll say hypoglycemia. <laughs> so all I had to do is ask the mother, stop using the telephone. Throw the damn thing away. Your daughter's more important than that stupid phone. She understood that. And guess what? I said, go into the teachers where your daughter loves the class and ask the teacher. And she did. And two weeks later, she came back and she said, whoa, my daughter's fine in all these other classes. But these two, she's not. I said, did it ever occur to you that she didn't like the class, didn't like the teacher, didn't like how it was taught? You think all teachers are equal? No. There's some better, some worse. And, I had, and now the kid is considered normal. All right? But there are 11 million out there who are on medications every day. 11 million. We're going to have more American kids commit suicide this year because of the diagnosis they've been given and the drugs they've been given than any time in our past. And no one seems to consider that a problem. More of the same doesn't change anything because everyone's using the past as a marker for present. So they're not willing to have the courage to say, look, maybe we've got it all wrong. <laughs> maybe giving more drugs to kids is not the answer. Maybe we should look at what it is to be a kid today. Is there too much pressure? Think of the self-esteem of a kid today. Their only self-esteem comes from performing the right missions for their parents so the parents can get them into the right preschool and the right school and the right classes. The kid today isn't a kid. They're a little adult overwhelmed by the responsibilities of trying to make everyone be happy about them, performing like barking seals. They have no sense of who they are. Go right out on the streets of New York today, take any hundred teenagers and ask them, who are you? And not one will be able to tell you who they are. Ask them, what could you do if you weren't distracted? And they'll say, don't put me in that place without constant group attention and constant adulation and constant reinforcement how good they are from everybody else for doing nothing, then they have this false sense that they're entitled to everything without mastering anything, especially self. It's a group concept and it's a very, very banal one that is causing untold suffering. So what do we do? More of the same. Because we don't have the time or attention to focus upon the real issues. And maybe, maybe if we looked at the problem, it wouldn't be our kids. It'd be the lifestyle, the lack of attention, the lack of unconditional acceptance. When was the last time a parent asked the kid instead of telling the kid? Kids are afraid to be that honest. Until the time where they can do something that really shows 
that they're in contempt, and that is they rebel. And how much of the activity of a kid today is based upon rebelling? And not always to the parent, because they also want the comforts. $125 billion in disposable income was given to 81 million kids this year. What do you expect to be the outcome of that? No natural self-esteem, no natural sense of meaning, all artificial. And then they go into a society that they believe is going to treat them with respect. A kid comes to work and they expect immediate promotions, immediate adulation, immediate, you're great. They immediately be the hero and be the best at anything. And go ahead real quick. Get someplace where they don't have to work. The rewards are what are important. They meet the real world, and the real world's not going to honor that. And then you got conflict and you got crisis, and then self doubt, and then loathing, and then self loathing, and social loathing, family loathing, and then suicide. And we don't see any of this. We don't see the problem that we've created. The solution is in reversing the problem. If you don't have the courage to reverse the problem, you're never going to have a solution. I can't put more good things over here in the hopes that the bad things I have here will balance out. Life is not a matter of good and bad, creating balance. We've been told that lie over and over, moderation in all things. Really? What's a moderate amount of herpes, hepatitis, syphilis, <laughs> gonorrhea? What's a moderate amount of arsenic, thimerosal? Right? Anything that is toxic is still toxic no matter what dosage it is. It accumulates. All energy is cumulative. And that's why we have people who just have nervous breakdowns, they just break apart, or people who just explode because it's an accumulation. Like debt, it accumulates. Like anger, it accumulates. Like frustration, it accumulates. Nobody just leaves a relationship, nobody just quits a job. Nobody just has a heart attack. It's an accumulation. Everything in life is the small stuff that accumulates, and we didn't pay attention to it because we didn't think it was that important. We're looking for the big kahuna. We're looking for the big fix. It doesn't work. We think somehow our life's going to be changed by a lottery or the right person stepping in and helping us out of our trauma, our crisis. But it doesn't work. Because most people are going to be wanting to rescue us. Just remember this. Anybody willing to rescue you has got an agenda. And then they're going to need rescued. Boy, two people drowning, trying to hold on to each other, not a way to survive. You have to get to a point of such frustration, such disillusionment, such pain, such imbalance, that you can't take it anymore. And at that point, you leave. Well, that takes a long time. Why? Change should be instant. Because truth is instant. The moment you're in is instant. And do you know what we do? We try to make time and reality synonymous in the sense that it's going to take a lot of time. And you know what you do when you say it's going to take a lot of time? You've given yourself every excuse not to change. A disciplined person says, I can't be disciplined to master something if I never do it. 
You got to do it and do it and do it and do it until that energy vibrates and changes the old energy. If you do something once and then wait three weeks or three months, it's gone. The old energy is still vibrating. That's mastery and commitment. How do you lose weight? How do you get healthy? How do you de-age? How do you show the love you have for yourself to other people? By the consistency of living it in the moment. But we don't live consistently, do we? Everything is nah, and then nah, and up and down, and happy and sad, and no consistency. Mastery and discipline and passion for this takes you forward to change things constructively. Next issue. I'd like for you to make a list of everything that you'd like to change. Everything. Every minor thing, tiny thing, middle, major thing. And then select one thing only, just one, and stay absolutely focused on that with all of your attention and keep yourself present in the moment with that thing you want to change. All right? And then each day, throughout the day, say, this is going to get my attention. One thing at a time. And once you have mastered that thing, where you no longer have to think about it, it's done. Then select another thing. Do not take on more than one thing at a time. Because you know what happens when you try to multitask? You divert your attention and you lose your balance. The idea of mastery is you must always maintain your balance. I work on a lot of projects, but I never lose sense that I'm my most important project. So every day I make sure I have what I need to maintain my balance. I come first in my life. And because I come first and I won't give myself any excuse, then my health is always optimal. Now then when I focus on something, I have the health and the state of mind and, and the passion and commitment, I can do something and make it work. But what if I didn't pay attention to myself? What if I got involved in doing a film and, and sometimes, you know, you don't think about eating and, and you want to get it done and then there are people who want counseling and suddenly you go from 8 o'clock in the evening to 4 o'clock in the morning and you didn't rest and now you're tired and your immune system's down? Well, what would it be? A half a year, a year, I'd be out of shape, I'd be toxic and then I'd be stressed, have a heart attack and then who am I helping? then the very thing that I wanted to do, honor my life by helping people honor theirs, I wouldn't be able to do. So the very thing I might fear, not being able to manifest my life in a way that is meaningful for other people, it would have come true. But by taking time to be balanced in all things, by being honest about what is, even if I can't change it, even if I can't reorder anything, by being honest about what I see, what I feel, what I understand, that keeps my balance. What I will not do is try to make something that's one way into another way so it fits into my beliefs. Then I'm dishonest and I'm, I'm taking on illusion. And so much of our life is illusion. So much of what we believe is illusion. Most of our institutions are based upon illusion and us continuing to believe in them. 
Think of the people believing in fast food uh, meals as being healthy. And think of the people who believe that if they come early and stay late, that they're going to be more respected at work. And think of the people who believe that they just care for everyone and take care of every one of their needs and are always responsible. Somehow they'll be appreciated for being this caregiver. Think of all the things you've done. At the end of the day, nobody cared. Nobody cared. The wrong way to build self-esteem is through what you do for other people. The right way to build self-esteem is what you do for yourself. Because when you do the right things for yourself, then without effort and without conflict and without contradiction, you'll know what to do for other people. And you'll know what not to do. Separating on the myth and illusion from the reality of our life is going to save you time because think how much your time you've lost by focusing on things that weren't real. And one day you wake up and there's nothing there. You think, but didn't I just spend all this time and energy on this relationship or on this and this? Yeah, you did. But that was the artificial self. That wasn't the real self. That wasn't the authentic self. But the good news is you're aware of it. So start now. A lot of people get very depressed because they know that something's not right, but they don't know how to change it or don't want to know if they can change it. They feel helpless. And that's why I'm saying you have to have the tools. And how you develop the tools are focusing on these issues and doing one thing at a time, but doing it right and staying with it till it's done. Next. Everything you do mirrors you. So if I do something, it's merely a mirror of who I am. So think about all the things every day that you're seeing as a reflection. Do you like what you see? Because if I'm mirroring myself through my actions, I want to see the things that show me as being authentic. Kind and thoughtful, loving and compassionate, caring and nurturing. And if I don't see that, then I have to change something. What I'm not going to change, I'm not going to change the perception of myself. Do you realize how dangerous it is to change the perception you have of yourself without changing yourself? There's such a danger in that. People have mastered the art of Changing the illusion. <clears throat> Think how many people will lie and say, well, I, I had to, or deceive, or betray, or do something they, they know is wrong. They don't want to see that mirror themselves. They don't want to see liar, thief, betrayer. They don't want to hold that mirror up in front of them. So they'll change it and try to make an excuse. They'll try to alter it. They create an illusion. Be honest about it. Don't create an illusion of who you are. See yourself for who you are and accept yourself for who you are. Even if what you're accepting is not something you want to be. The, the problem is we don't, when we don't like what we see about ourselves, we try to change the image of ourselves. That's a game. If you're a racist, if you're a misogynist, see yourself as that. It is healthier for you to see yourself with all of your weaknesses and negativity and at least be honest about it because once you're honest about what you see, you can change it. 
You can't change what you're not honest about. You can't change an illusion that you've accepted as real because then where's reality? It's hidden. So then everything you're feeding is going into the illusion. And when you feed the illusion, you're not connecting with what is authentic. So go through the discomfort or even pain to look in that mirror and say, wow, if I'm mirroring this back and I don't like it, then let me focus on this. Let me understand the lesson of my mirror. And that takes a real commitment to create an authentic self, and with that authentic self, authentic self-esteem. So therefore, you will not do anything for the wrong reasons. You will not need other people's applause, adulation, approval, or stroking. And you will not spend your life forever frustrated by what you cannot recreate from your past and try to artificially stimulate yourself through love or passion or security by what you buy, who you're with. You'll look for what's authentic. Do you know how many men and women in the United States today married people for security? And then found out they were still insecure? Because <laughs> it's an illusion, right? You get inside and you think, ah, I did it. I did it. And then you think, why don't I feel good? Well, because the real self isn't present, just the preconditioned self. Stay in the moment and stay in life. Thank you all very much.